Mark chapter 13, verses 1 through 13. And he came out of the temple. As he came out, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will the sign be when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet, for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what are you to say. But say what is whatever is given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. So church, let's open up his word this morning. We are in Mark chapter 13, we're at verses 1 through 13 this morning. We are in what is called the Olivet Discourse, all right? Olivet Discourse. We're going to look at this section of Scripture, chapter 13, over the course of three weeks, actually. Uh, Now, as I look ahead at three weeks, in two weeks from now, I'm actually traveling. I'm uh, taking a little trip with my family up to Virginia. We're actually going to see Bill Dumphy in Grace Point Church, the church that we uh, have the privilege of partnering with and sending out nine years ago. And um, on that third week of what would be the Olivet Discourse, Mark Sladorn and I are going to uh, flip-flop and preach things out of order just a little bit so I can come back then the third week, what's actually four weeks from now, and close up the Olivet Discourse. But over the course of these three messages, we're going to look at three sections of this one teaching of Jesus. And if you look at chapter 13, there are a number of different ways that you could sort of break it down to try to look for understanding. Um, One that we're going to kind of go with is we're going to look at verses 1 through 13 this morning. This is the opening question and the opening answer. Then we're going to look at verses 14 through 31, which is the the coming tribulation and the glory of the Son of Man. And then we're going to look in the third week, actually four weeks from now, the coming day when the Lord returns. Okay. Now this section of Scripture just happens to be the most difficult passage in Mark to interpret. (laughs) So uh, here we go. 
Let's spend three weeks working on this. Specifically, it's difficult to discern some of what seems to be very hyperbolic language, really big language. It seems maybe beyond what surely is being communicated. It's difficult to discern also not only some of the the language of the signs, but also to discern the time frames that Jesus is speaking of. When is he speaking about what time period? Now, it's interesting that what we'll see this morning is the disciples' question is actually, what signs and when will it happen? That's what the disciples ask, and yet in Jesus' answer, there are two things that are the most difficult to discern. What signs and when will it happen? That's a signal to me that Jesus' answer is actually answering something more profound and more clear and straightforward than the disciples' question. Jesus is kind to do this almost every time he's asked a question. Rarely does he give a simple answer to the question, but rather he takes the question and uses it as a launching point to answer what ought to have been asked. I should admit that there is no interpretive consensus on this most difficult passage of the Gospel of Mark. And our own congregation, among those who have considered the passage closely, I'm sure that there are a variety of interpretations of this text. Specifically, it's difficult to discern when Jesus is speaking of a more immediate fulfillment, as we'll see in the destruction of the temple in what we now know to be AD AD 70, and what is a more distant fulfillment that we don't yet know the day or the hour, which is the return of the Son of Man, the second coming of the Messiah, the return of Jesus. Now, my own interpretation is that the majority of Jesus' focus in this text is in reference to his own initial statement, his own answer in verse 2 about the fact that the temple is going to be utterly destroyed. I think that the majority of what he has to say in chapter 13 is in reference to his own explicit answer, and that in spite of an increasingly extreme and hyperbolic language that he uses, it actually isn't until all the way over in verse 32 that he turns his subject to another time period, a far more distant time period, which is his own return, the second coming. Now, that's actually a, a common feature of prophetic language. Perhaps you've used, uh, heard the illustration of the mountain range metaphor for understanding prophetic scripture. The, I mean, imagine and for me, I have to go to Colorado. That's where I imagine mountains in the distance. I'm driving across Iowa and Nebraska and then on into Colorado. And as you're approaching Denver from like 100 miles out, you see the appearance of a singular mountain range, right? These bumps off in the distance emerging out of the shadows, And you can see, when you look at a mountain range from a distance, you can see that it has many ridges, that there's a contour of the future if you continue on into it. But it's difficult to discern which of the ridges of that singular mountain range that you see off in the distance. It's difficult from a distance to see which of those ridges are actually really up close and basically Denver. And which of those ridges are actually far off, and you're looking off into the distance of like Vail and so on, 
far off into the mountain range. But from a distance, they just look like one big mountain range. It's not until you become closer and closer and closer that these far-off ridges become distinct from one another. Okay, I think that's one of the things that happens in prophetic literature. They're describing things that are far off, and they blend together in the timeline. But as those things approach, they begin to become distinct from one another, like the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in AD 70, and the return of the Lord at a date that we have not yet seen. So what isn't difficult to understand, though, in the midst of all the difficulty of trying to understand exactly what the signs are, exactly when these things will happen, what isn't difficult to understand is Jesus's instruction. So Jesus answers a question that leaves us with more questions than answers. But if we listen to what he's actually answering, he's remarkably clear. In his final discourse in Mark, this is his final extended teaching. He pulls four of his disciples aside to share it. Before the opening scenes of his passion that we'll see in chapter 14, his, his movement toward betrayal and execution and resurrection and ascension, Jesus makes clear a call to faith-filled discipleship in chapter 13. It's clear. It's ringingly clear. He's making a clear call to faith-filled proclamation of the gospel in the midst of turbulent times and in hope of his own return. Jesus' words in this chapter are a call, in his own words, to stay awake. When so many others in the world are asleep to the real story of the movement of history, they think it's all about wars and earthquakes. He says, stay awake. It's about myself, my glory, and my gospel. Follow after me. This is the central point, I believe, of Mark chapter 13, and we would do well to give it attention. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would give us attention, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, humility to submit. And as much as I or others may hold to an interpretive framework, let us just hear the words. Hear what you have to say, and Lord, be receptive to what your Spirit would apply to our hearts that that we have so often slumbered. We've so often been anxious. We've so often been distracted. We've been fooled, even. Lord, humble us before your word, your spirit this morning, to do the work of the Christ and his gospel in our midst. Thank you, Lord. We pray this in your name. Amen. Look at the passage with me. Verse 1. As he came out of the temple, one of the disciples said to him, and then he launches into a question. We've already had something remarkable happen in the passage. I didn't even finish verse 1. He came out of the temple. That's a really big deal. It's not a throwaway statement. Why is he coming out of the temple? Is it because he got attacked there and he said, well, i got to get out of here. No, he actually lingered and opened up a very controversial teaching last week. After the questions were done, he stands up and he says, well, I have a couple things I'd like to say. And he says it, and it's difficult to hear. And then, when he's done teaching, not when they're done asking questions, but when he is done teaching in the temple, he gets up and he goes out of the temple. Jesus isn't retreating. And I think he's doing more than simply leaving now that he's done. I think what we can see in the passage is that Jesus is actually going out in terms of walking out in judgment. Jesus, the Lord, is exiting the temple. 
And it's not a mere movement of his flesh. Jesus has spent from chapter 11 until this moment in a confrontation with the authorities in Jerusalem and particularly in the temple. And he's been confronting their hypocrisy and so much of the hypocrisy of what was passing for worship in the temple. He's been confronting these things and now he gets up and he goes out. I I was reminded in in looking at this of Isaiah chapter 1. In Isaiah 1 12 and 13, it says, when you come to appear before me, who is required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings are the words of the Lord to the people at worship. And friends, we would do well to humble ourselves before that and wonder if, if perhaps at times, and certainly in this moment in history, if, if many of those who were gathering in supposed worship really just trampling the courts, and the Lord gets up and walks out. And he says, who required this? Bring no more vain offerings. I'd rather you not bring anything. Now Jesus comes out of the temple. He's He's done with his work there in the temple. And I think that means more than just on that day. Instead of continuing in the temple, he comes out. And he doesn't just come out and then go home. He actually comes out, goes up a mountain on the east side, and he he stands opposite the temple, and he pronounces judgment upon the temple and what it has become in those who are worshiping there. Let's remember that the Lord has promised protection upon the temple. That's a promise. That's a covenant of the Lord. And he's promised protection of, of those who would seek refuge there. But that protection along the way is the covenant has been made with the people who gather for worship in the temple. The covenant is with those who would worship him according to his command. Who would come to him in dependent faith, not in presumptuous hypocrisy. And On the other hand, he has promised judgment and destruction if those who come to the temple are simply trampling courts and fail to follow after him. That also has been promised. And he's also promised redemption. I love this. This is a scheme that is in in all of the covenant of, of God. Every time he's revealing himself to his people, he promises blessing. He promises curse. And because he knows which of those two we're going to choose, he promises redemption for repentance. Even in the midst of the warnings of judgment, God is preaching the gospel. It's in the foundation of this redemption hope that, the, that really the heart of the remainder of Mark is a playing out. Jesus is turning from the teaching in the temple to the performance of his gospel. Jesus isn't teaching anymore. Now he's working. And I've often wondered, as you watch him, and he's, he's said some exasperated-sounding things, is his teaching really even working? But his work, in his sacrifice, in his death and his resurrection, it will work. The gospel will work. His own rejection, his suffering, his death and resurrection are the work of the remainder of the gospel of Mark, that he would become the true and greater temple to which all must come in faith, and that his own body would become the new sacrifice, the effective sacrifice, once and for all finished sacrifice by which he would redeem and reconcile 
all of the worshipers to God. This is the theme of the remainder of Mark and really the the content of the gospel. Now, we're halfway through verse 1, so we should probably keep moving, you think? Let's take a peek. Verse 1, he came out of the temple. Now, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. He's speaking of the temple. What wonderful stones. This is the second temple. It's known as Herod's temple. It's a a rebuilding and expansion of Solomon's temple, which was destroyed by the Babylonians in about 600 years before this particular date. After the Israelites returned from exile, about a generation or so later, they rebuilt the temple in a very modest form, nothing like the glory of Solomon's temple. But then not long before Jesus' birth, about 500 years later, Herod the Great began a great expansion of this modest temple in Jerusalem. And that expansion is what is known as the Second Temple or Herod's temple. And under that construction, it was under construction for 46 years, and it's actually not even finished yet. All right? Perhaps he wasn't even pointing to stones that were in place. Perhaps he was pointing at stones that were being put in place. They were almost done here. And what what the disciples saw with Jesus as they wandered around Jerusalem and, and spent their time in the temple, they were in a temple that was one mile in circumference. That is a large building, okay? It, was, it, it contained up to 12 football fields, right? You think stadiums are big? This is huge. It had blocks as large as 60 feet long. They found some of these that are, that are off in a distance from Jerusalem that had been cut and likely prepared as foundations. There, its doors and its columns and many of its walls were coated with gold so that when you looked at this massive structure from a distance and certainly from up on a mountain outside of the city where Jesus is on this day, it would shine in its glory. Beautiful. What a beautiful, glorious, large image of the glory of God. A house of God. And yet when we see the temple, the dwelling place of God described in Revelation, it's even bigger. These are all just shadows and images of a grander glory of our God. It was really one of the greatest wonders of the ancient world. If you read Josephus' account of the temple, you'll see that the disciples are not overstating the case to speak of wonderful stones and wonderful buildings in Jerusalem. An incredible city. We ought to hold the city and its temple in esteem and say, that's amazing. I'd love to see it. We would be astounded with them. Jesus, I mentioned last week, it's like he, Jesus took his disciples on a walking tour of Jerusalem. And, and he's revealed just about everything that he's seen. It, it seems like he's not very impressed. And every time he interacts with something in Jerusalem, instead of reveling in its glory, he reveals its superficiality. Now, that's interesting because now the disciples are coming out of the place that that Jesus has shown to be gold-gilted and superficial. They're still impressed. Walking out of the temple, they're still saying, what amazing stones and buildings. I I went to Spain 
a couple months ago, celebration of my son's graduation and just a, a time to be with him and, and my wife, and, and we took a trip to Toledo, all right? And we went to, to Toledo where they have this amazing cathedral, Right, we walked into this great cathedral. It's the largest cathedral I've ever been in. There was gold everywhere. We walked into this room, and it had this gold thing that was taller than I am. And you just look, it was, it was wondrous. It was. The, the gold was everywhere. Colors, graven images, saints, paintings, wall hangings. Truly impressive. You would be right to say, this is a wonderful place. Filled with wonders and glories to the eyes. It was clear that I was supposed to be impressed, even, even moved to, to a religious devotion being in such a glorious, wondrous space. But I'll be honest, I wasn't. I found it very difficult to be in that building and to tour its many, many halls. The art was amazing. I love art. The architecture was unlike anything I'd ever seen. I'd never seen something like that. It was, I was actually amazed. But the result in my spirit was that I was grieved, being honest. The, the standard line in the, of the tour guides as you walk around, perhaps you've ever taken a, a tour of a religious structure such as that, was, was they would say something like this, because the people were largely illiterate, these grand images were necessary to teach the people the story of the Bible and the church. So you need grand, grand glorious, wonderful images in order to teach people the truth, right? But it struck me that somehow, during the course of the whole of the history of the Jewish people, they've managed to avoid, by and large, these gaudy, graven displays. And instead, they simply taught even the poorest among them to read. So that even the poorest among them would have access to the most precious possession, the Holy Scriptures. I just kept thinking, I mean, this, that's really neat to have a nice storybook for the people. But if you loved them, wouldn't you teach them to read? If the church really cared about teaching the story of redemption, teach the people the word. Now, that cathedral and so many more like it are more of a story of the power of man and man-made religion and the politics of nations than the hope of redemption. I just couldn't, I couldn't avoid that conclusion. I think that Jesus is making much the same observation of Herod's temple in that day. The temple isn't functioning for the glory of God and the making known of his great name according to his own design. But it's rather functioning for the glory of Herod and the glory of the Sanhedrin. And he gets up and he walks out. It's no longer a house of prayer, but a house of hypocrisy. I think there's a warning for us. Before we travel around to Toledo and start pronouncing warnings elsewhere, maybe there's a warning for us. What is the heart of our religious practices as a church? Is our heart a genuinely making known of the truth, reality, and the glory of the heart intent of God? Is that the, the, the result of, of our practices together? Is this is our labor? Or is there too much cross-point coast? Or more personally, is there too much Jeremiah Fife? Too much spreading of our logo and our reputation rather than the cross to which our logo points? 
the fame of Christ that we proclaim? It's a question that we should always ask, and we shouldn't tire of asking, and shouldn't be afraid of the answer, and ask the Lord that he would refine us, keep us, Jesus. We are prone to wander. Now look at Jesus' response. They ask a question. Actually, they're not even asking a question. (laughs) They're just commenting. And he corrects them, says, asks his own question. Do you see these great buildings? Yeah, they're wonderful. We just told you. There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Well, there is a killjoy. <laughs> like, we were impressed for a second there, and you're, everything's gone? Torn down? Every single one of those amazing, wonderful stones that we just commented on? Come on, Jesus. In Matthew chapter 12, in another episode, Jesus says something greater than the temple is here. This is a grand temple. It's a true spectacle, but Jesus is proclaiming that it is being replaced with something greater. Jesus himself is the third and the final temple. He is, the temple has gotten up and gone out of the temple. And he opens up a prophecy in the words that follow. What follows is an explanation of what is to come, an unpacking of what he's speaking of in this destruction, leading up to and culminating in the destruction of the temple. And now this is fascinating. What does that look like? Certainly the disciples were wondering why. They ask in just a moment, what are the signs? How do we know when it's going to happen? When does this take place? We can look back. And we have an entire book that's written all about it. It's called the book of Acts. We have a record of the fulfillment of the prophecies that Jesus is speaking of here. This is the largest clue for me that verses 1 through 13, at least, perhaps even all the way through verse 31, is speaking about a time between the ascension of Jesus and the destruction of the temple in A.D. 30 much of which is recorded for us in the book of Acts. In verse 32, we see a turn. And there's a turn in the scope of Jesus' prophecy. He moves from speaking about the days to speaking about the day and that hour. He moves from speaking about the destruction of the temple, I believe, in verse 32, to a description of the return of the Lord. But we'll look at that when we come to it. For now, let's look at what Jesus does We see him, he proclaims this amazing prophecy. There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Verse 3, And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, four of his disciples came to him. His three inner circle and a brother came along, Andrew. Now, again, I don't think it's a throwaway sentence. He sits down on the Mount of Olives. He's sitting with Peter, James, John, Andrew. Now, the Mount of Olives that is opposite the temple is actually 300 feet above Jerusalem. So he's looking down as he makes this authoritative pronouncement, taking an authoritative position above the city and above the temple. He seats himself down to to make an authoritative pronouncement. Now, Ezekiel spoke of the removal of the Lord's presence in the form of the temple prior to its first destruction. 
Ezekiel spoke of the Lord getting up out of the temple and going out before it was destroyed the first time. The glory of the Lord literally lifts up out of the temple. It exits the city and never guess where it went. Yeah, the Mount of Olives. And takes his place there. Ezekiel chapter 11, verse 23. Great passage to write in the margin of your Bible here. Ezekiel eleven twenty-three. The glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain that is on the east side of the city. Jesus here performs the same act of judgment before the temple's destruction again. He is the glory of the Lord. Isn't this what we know about the Christ? And he's gone up out of the temple, and here on the Mount of Olives, he makes his pronouncement. And the disciples, as they sit there, they're wondering what's going on, and they're hearing what he's saying, they ask this question. Look at verse 4 with me. Tell us, when will these things be? What will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? They're curious. As is often the case, Jesus makes a more public announcement as they're exiting the temple, and then he takes his four, they ask him a question, and he begins to teach them more privately. So let's listen to Jesus. And here's the thing. We're brought into the inner circle, you and me, this morning. In the opening up of the word, we get to sit down with the four. We get to be like Andrew sitting there with the inner circle, Peter, James, and John, and listen to the teaching of Jesus. And here's what we get. We get two pairs of imperatives in our early passage. Two two pairs of two instructions in verses 1 through 13. I believe the purpose of this prophecy, and really most prophecy in the Scriptures, is as Kent Hughes puts it. He's so helpful. He's been so helpful during the course of our time in Mark. Kent Hughes writes, that is not primarily to provide a timetable or a blueprint for the future, so much as to exhort readers to faithful discipleship in the present. What is the purpose of prophecy? He he puts it this way. Later he writes, There is a running admonition against future speculation at the expense of present obedience. Is Jesus speaking about the future? Yes. Is he speaking about specific things in the future? Yes. So much so that come AD 70, we'll be like, yep, that's what he was talking about. It actually happened. Yes. But what is his message for his disciples on that day? A call to faith-filled obedience right now. How does that call come? We see it right away. Look at verse 5. And Jesus began to say to them, see that no one leads you astray. And he gives two instructions in this first little section. Do not be alarmed and see that no one leads you astray. There will be those in verse 6, it says, there will be those who come along and say, I am he. And then those who say, I am he, meaning I am the Messiah. I am he is literally what Jesus has said elsewhere. I am, Jesus said. And there will be those who come after the resurrection of Jesus said, no, 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 I am the Messiah. And he says, no, don't be alarmed and see to it that no one leads you astray. His point isn't to prophesy the names of the people and on which dates they'll come and what sign will accompany their coming. His call is, no, there are false teachers coming. Be, be alert. Don't be led astray. Just because someone makes claims about themselves doesn't make their claims true. What it does 
mean is that the false messiahs will try to lead people astray. But the question is, astray from what? What are they being led astray from? What are you supposed to be cautious not to be led astray from? Well, it's from faithfulness, from the redemption, the covenant, the gospel, from the word that has been proclaimed to you, contained in the Holy Scriptures. Don't let anyone who comes who says, I am he. And I've got some really good information for you if you just follow after me, lead you astray from that which is written. Jesus, the true Messiah, has done nothing but that which is the fulfillment of the Scriptures. How do we know that when he says, I am he, he is the one? Because over and over again, we see the, the gospel accounts and really the majority of the New Testament making reference to all of this took place in accordance with the Scriptures. Do not be led astray by lofty claims, but consider the Scriptures. Jesus, the true Messiah, has done nothing but fulfill them. A repeated refrain that this took place in accordance with the Scriptures. We're not to simply believe the claims of men and so be led astray by their charisma or their promises. We're to be guided and guarded by the word of the Lord. Friends, that's one of the reasons why that wonderful symbols and images and architecture just don't cut it. You need the word. You and we need the word so that we would not be led astray. We need to remember. And then in verse 7, we're told, do not be alarmed. You see, these are the two imperatives. Don't be led astray and don't be alarmed. Verse 7, you're going to hear wars, rumors of wars. Do not be alarmed, he says. Wars and rumors of wars. Have you heard that phrase before? I know many of you have. Maybe some haven't, and it's fine. I've asked a few people this week what they think of when they hear the phrase, wars and rumors of wars. What do you think when, if I just said that phrase, wars and rumors of wars, and I said, Jesus said it, you're like, yeah, I remember that. I remember somebody talking about that. Maybe a pastor, maybe a book, maybe a televangelist talking about wars and rumors of wars. What was Jesus talking about? When I've asked that question just recently, everyone I've talked to so far has said, well, he's talking like wars and rumor of wars. That's what's going to happen when the end is coming. Look at, look at what he says. I would argue that what we're being right now is misguided rather than being alert. Look at verse 7. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, don't be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. He's literally saying, you're going to hear of wars and rumors of wars, but that is not a sign of the end. That's just normal. Like, that's just what happens. Literally, when, I, when, when the war broke out in, in Ukraine just weeks ago, I immediately saw articles popping up that just said, the end is coming, the end is near. Friends, it's a war and it's a rumor of a war, but the end is not yet. That's just real. That's just true. And it happens in fallen mankind all the time. It's suffering and a grieve us, but it is not a sign of the end. Pay attention to the words of the Lord himself. It, I don't think it's difficult to argue that the, the, the drastic majority of the claims and teachings of those who make prophetic claims or teach prophetic interpretations are little more than false or at least misled teachers of what Jesus is speaking of here. 
People who get all excited about world events. And Jesus is literally saying in his own words, this is not a sign to you. That's just the sort of thing that happens. In verse 8, he, he goes on to describe it. It says, nation will rise up against nation. Right? Kingdom against kingdom. There's going to be earthquakes in various places, famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. Kent Hughes points to the fact that Vesuvius destroyed Pompeii. An earthquake took place in Laodicea. A famine took place in Rome. These things were happening. And, and, and because we have a global access, we can see these things are happening everywhere all the time. It's not getting worse. It's just getting is. It's true. This is life in a world that's groaning in the fall longing for redemption. We should not be misled by our own imaginations. Friends, one of the worst false teachers that we got walks around with us everywhere we are. Let our imaginations be captured by the actual words of the Lord. But let's remember the historical scope of Jesus' teaching here. He's not speaking just in general. He's speaking specifically of a tumultuous time leading up to what we now know to be A.D. 70 and the destruction of the temple. We can look back and, and see that. He's warning his disciples that the peri- this period, this historical moment, this 40 years between the resurrection and ascension and the destruction is a tumultuous time. And he's telling them, don't be distracted by the tumult. Be faithful. Be watchful. And he's going to continue on to speak of birth pains. All of redemption history has been a story of the earth groaning for redemption. Birth pains indicate not only, not, not the end of all things. Birth pains represent the fruition. It's birth pains. There is a fruitfulness that the Lord is bringing about. I would refer you, I wish we had time to look at it more closely this morning, but I would refer you to Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 22. Look at that this week and reflect upon the birth pains, pain and hope. That's what we ought to see when we see the world groaning, suffering, tragedy. We should see pain. We should see hope. Don't be alarmed. Don't be led astray. Don't be led to fear, but be led to faith. The Lord is at work in history. Jesus is telling them sin and brokenness brokenness weaves a pattern throughout the fabric of history, but the Lord, the sovereign ruler, is alone the hope that's moving history to its final conclusion. There is a thread of suffering, and it's always there, but the Lord has woven the whole cloth. And at the end of time, we will see that whole cloth, and we will see redemption history at work. Not men with their lofty claims, not disasters with their fearful rumblings. We will see that the Lord alone is the master of history. Don't be distracted, Jesus tells them. We look at this next section. We can walk through it quickly because really he's making the same argument again using a couple different features. He begins in verse 9 by saying, but be on your guard. They're going to deliver you over to councils. You'll be beaten in synagogues. Stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness for them. 
made an argument along the way that there is a, there's a sort of a cultural sense of evolution that's worked its way into our understanding of history to the point that people talk about evolving on issues as if their changes are automatic progress. That's, that's, not, that's not what change is. It's not automatic progress. Like change goes in multiple directions, you know, when you change your mind. But this idea of, of, a, of, a, of a progression in history to a glorious utopian dream has crept its way into our understanding of history. But evolution is not a good framework for the understanding of history. History is not a story of, of inevitable progress. It's a story of wars and rumors of wars. It's a thread that weaves its way through and of redemption. See, redemption is a far greater description of the reality of history, not evolution, not inevitable progress, but interruption. God invading suffering history, taking on flesh, suffering in our place, rising in victory in an unexpected fashion, taking his seat on the throne of heaven and working in history with the sending of his spirit and the proclamation of his gospel, not with an inevitable end and sort of a a slow progress to utopia, but the invasion of his gospel over and over in human lives and cultures. This is the redemptive story of history And once you understand that you won't be surprised that things aren't progressing where you don't go to jail anymore because you proclaim the gospel, you'll kind of say, no, that's the thread that weaves its way through, still in a fallen world. And we shouldn't be surprised, even though we've experienced in our own cultural circumstance here a, a relative freedom and freedom to move and to speak, we shouldn't be surprised that we might lose at any second. I was listening to a sermon by Kent Hughes on this passage. Got about halfway through, and I heard him. It was being preached in 1988, okay? And he said, now I know here in 1988, we, we, we Christian evangelicals, we, we, we get to experience a certain measure of, of, of good publicity in the press. And I said, what planet do you live on? <laughs> a measure of good press? Man, it's only a couple decades later, and the thread has woven a different story in this time. Evangelicals aren't receiving good press. Wars of rumors of wars, suffering being brought before governors. So be it. That's the story. That's the thread. Governors, synagogues, kings, there's really no safe place for the gospel. But in all of those places, his his message is clear. We are to proclaim or to bear witness in these spaces, not to receive accolades and gain prominence. Man, that's great if it's a result. It's kind of nice if you get to be safe and well heard, but it's not our call. It's not our call. Our call is to bear witness. No matter what the cultural, 1988 or 2022, so be it. The outbreak of hostility is not a sign that something's wrong, except for the world is groaning and redemption is working. It's a signal that we are to bear witness all the more because the world needs an invasion of the gospel to proclaim in every place that we receive persecution, we're to remain there and proclaim the gospel to witness 
to Christ. And his words in verse 11, and when they bring you to trial, when the thread weaves of suffering and wars and rumors of wars and you find yourself on trial, they deliver you over. It's even your kids and your friends and your parents who are the ones that are delivering you over. When you are delivered over, don't be anxious beforehand what you'll say. You have the Holy Spirit. Now Jesus just told us to expect suffering. And when someone tells you to expect suffering, what ought that to inspire? Fear. Come on, it's okay to be human, right? I'm afraid when Jesus says, you're going to suffer and you're going to be dragged all over the place. But then he says, no, no, God is with you. What do you have to be afraid of? I'm giving you the Spirit. He's present right there when you're dragged in front of those councils, which makes me ask, why in the world do I prepare for sermons? <laughs> I just want you to know I don't consider you a council that has me on trial, all right? That we are to prepare to open up the word and search the scriptures and give attention and be awake as believers gathered together paying attention to this glorious word that is redemption's invasion. Let's, let's pay attention. Let's prepare and be ready. And then when we're before a governor, then we're, when we're called into the boss's office or a friend goes off on us. Spirit, be present. Friend, you have nothing to be afraid of. Do not be afraid. Again, here I would point you to Philippians chapter 4, verses 5 through 7. Speaking of the, the, the Lord who will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus when he tells you don't be anxious about anything. He's not a taskmaster telling you to deny your human reality. He's just telling you the further reality, God is with you. When they bring you to trial, when they deliver you over, when brothers and fathers and children are being delivered over to death, and if you wonder if that's hyperbole, read Acts. We have the record of these things happening. And you know what else we have the record of? People standing up, filled with the Spirit, proclaiming the gospel. And in the least likely of places, repentance and faith the in radical invasion of the gospel into the least likely of spaces. Friends, that is our story. Acts, the story of the Holy Spirit and his word at work in his church. And the word increased and multiplied in their midst. You'll be hated at all by all for my name's sake. Whose name do you want to bear? You'll be hated by all. See, I don't mind. I don't like it. It doesn't feel good. But on my smartest day, I don't mind if people don't like Jeremiah. Because that's a little name. That's a small name. That's a little reputation. And if I told you all of who he is, I wouldn't like him either. But I bear a name. And I bear witness to a name. And that name is great. It's worth it. So be on your guard. Don't be anxious. We're, we're to be realistic in light of the reality of our historical circumstance. It is a tragedy that we pray for relief from when a believer suffers for his namesake. It's tragedy. We're realistic. We understand our historical circumstance. 
But in light of reality, of the promise and presence of the Lord, man, that gets a context. Our suffering gets the context of redemption hope. So what do we do with all of this? As I suggested, my understanding of this section of Jesus' teaching is perfectly fulfilled in A.D. 70, and yet a pattern has been established that's really been there the whole time. Specifically, the word multiplies and increases in a tumultuous world that's described in the book of Acts. And he continues to move as the gospel is made known among the nations, according to this passage. The people are preserved, but more importantly, the word of God multiplies and increases. The greatest prophetic fulfillment is the cross and resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He came into the reality of suffering and sin. He stepped into his own persecution, and he interrupted history with the glory of his grace. I have to believe that Satan operates with an evolutionistic design mentality, that he can simply progress this thing into the pit. But the Lord operates with a worldview of redemption, and he breaks in and he interrupts even Satan's design for the cross. And he makes it a story of redemptive grace. Praise be to God that this is our story. May we be called to a belief and a faithfulness and a daily discipleship in the midst of wars. Tragedy. Rumors of wars that we don't even know much about and that the news just doesn't seem to like to cover. And may we long for the proclamation of the gospel, our only hope. Heavenly Father, you are the sovereign in history. You, we can look back and see AD 70. You look forward. God, we trust you. You are the revealer of things. You're even the revealer of our own hearts and our needs of you, our need of you. You, you, you point to the temple and say, you guys are still impressed. What's wrong with you? Maybe you're more like the Sanhedrin than you are like the Christ that you've been following for three years. God, would you, would you give us an impression of ourselves that we would no longer hope in ourselves? We would no longer hope in our religiosity. We would no longer hope in our hypocrisy. We would no longer hope in our political circumstance. But we would hope in you alone, the salvation and forgiveness that is in the Christ alone, and that we would know your redemptive interruption in our lives, in our church, in our circumstance today as we go to proclaim your gospel, first to our hearts, then to the hearts of our neighbors, our loved ones, our community. God, if you would have it, kings. Thank you, God. We trust you. We trust your presence with us today. Thank you, Lord. We pray this in your good name. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.